1: Welcome to Naked Reflections, brought to you from the Wolf Institute. I'm Ed Kessler, and each week I'll be taking an in-depth look at the stories reported by our friends over at the Naked Scientists. What does the latest scientific stuff mean for the rest of us? Stay with us and find out. O rose, thou art sick, the invisible worm that flies in the night in the howling storm has found out thy bed of crimson joy and his dark secret love does thy life destroy. William Blake's famous poem seems to embody the idea of corruption, albeit in an oblique and mysterious way. Corruption, of a more prosaic nature, is on our minds this week, a mode of human behaviour that's widely condemned, but just as widely practised. I guess most of us would like to think we're not among the guilty ones in this respect, but how honest are we? Alan Cohen of the University of Michigan undertook a fascinating experiment which involved leaving a number of wallets in public places. A surprisingly high number were returned to the fictional address provided. Wallets with money inside were returned more often than those that were empty. Even more surprisingly, the more money that was left in the wallet, the more likely it was to be returned. Professor Cohen spoke about this as part of the Naked Scientist show Extremely Deep, Mining for Gold. There are two key
0: factors that play a role here. The first one is altruism. You don't want to hurt someone else, so that could motivate you to return the wallet, especially when there is no money inside. But adding money completely changes the psychology because now there is a second component. People don't want to see themselves as dishonest people. These psychological costs increase with the amount of money in the wallet. So this force becomes stronger the more money there is in the wallet, and this gives this unexpected finding. With me to discuss
1: corruption are Dr. Tony Badger, formerly Professor of American History and author of the book FDR, The First 100 Days. My other guest is Professor Liz David Barrett, who is Director of the Center for the Study of Corruption at the University of Sussex and focuses on anti-corruption policies of governments, private sector, and NGOs. Plenty there. Now, Liz, that research nudges us towards the conclusion that most people are basically honest. Do you buy that?
2: Yes, I do, actually. I do think that most people are basically honest. But I also think that you don't necessarily get honest people and dishonest people. I think it depends on the situation. So even people who are honest most of the time might be dishonest in some situations. And that might be that they are, you know, there are white lies, of course, lies that are trying to reduce harms. But also even people who are generally good and doing the right thing, I think in some situations might be dishonest in a way that is meant to further their own interests.
1: Well, maybe we should start with what corruption is. If it's, is it just a grey area? You know, you mentioned white lies and we're all very good at telling our, our children to tell the truth. But at the same time, um, white lies seem to be acceptable. So, so what is corruption?
2: So I think that corruption needs to involve someone who is in some kind of position of entrusted power. So actually, the Transparency International definition of corruption is the abuse of entrusted power for private gain. There's something I like about that definition is that it's pretty broad. So we trust people in all sorts of positions. So we often think about corruption in terms of someone who's in a kind of public official role, someone who works for the government. But actually, there are all sorts of roles in which we entrust people with power. Doctors, we entrust with a certain kind of power to act in a way that improves our well-being and addresses our health issues and to do no harm. So there are all sorts of ways in which we entrust power. But the thing about corruption is that it's someone who is then violating the kind of norms or duties that are associated with that power holding, with that office, and that they're doing so because they're motivated by private gain. So it's not just an accident or incompetence, but it's because they are actually being diverted from doing the right thing by the promise of getting some kind of benefit to themselves.
1: Well, let's look into corruption in one particular area, and let's take politics. It's such a controversial and popular one, as it were, right now. Tony, this is an area that you've looked in for, well, decades, really. You mentioned before we started that your interest um, began with Huey Long. Who was he and what was that about?
0: He was uh, governor of Louisiana in the late 1920s and then senator from Louisiana and uh, offered a third party threat to Franklin Roosevelt in the 1930s. But he virtually operated a dictatorial regime in Louisiana. And what Liz says about corruption for people in positions of trust following corrupt practices for private gain, I mean, does raise this murky question of when private gain is also linked up to the common good. And uh, Long achieved his power in Louisiana through electoral success and popular appeal. But in order to get things done in Louisiana, he had to confront the routine corruption of Louisiana politics, that is, the control by the major economic interests in the state of the state legislature, the Standard Oil Company in particular. And in a sense, he had to fight fire with fire. And so he was prepared to bribe legislators. He was prepared to um, stuff election boxes, all of which were tactics that his opponents used. And in one way, the only way to um, wrest control from them was to follow that pattern. And he provided the services for his constituents that had been denied them. So he provided the roads and the pensions and the schools. But of course, there's a cost to it. And in the long run, that sort of welfare liberalism, corrupt welfare liberalism, is costly that's fine if your economy is doing well, but uh, it raises questions about the structure of poverty in a state like Louisiana. And in the end, there's a legacy of bad governance, which actually affects ordinary people. So the people that Huey Long originally was trying to benefit in the end will also suffer from poor schools, poor roads, poor governance. And you have a, a crisis like Katrina, which exposes lack of quality of governance of a state like Louisiana. So one's very sympathetic to the longs of Louisiana. They're very attractive figures, frequently providing great good for the state. But there is a cost.
1: Does that echo with your own research in other parts of the world, Liz?
2: So I think Tony's absolutely right. There are kind of these you know, short term versus long term or direct benefits of a particular transaction versus the impact that it has longer term on undermining the rule of law. So you might have an individual transaction, which is corrupt you know, violates the rules and someone does it, at least partly for, for private gain. It might also, that individual act, serve the public interest. But then what we need to also think about is what's the kind of indirect impact over time of having undermined the rules and processes. And basically what you're saying there is that, you know, we're not going to allocate resources according to some kind of process that everybody can see. It's transparent, it's fair, it's been decided through a public process. Instead, we're going to allocate resources according to our own preferences. And that has a really undermining effect in the long term. So, you know, if you think about giving out contracts, for example, what you then see if you're a a company that's in the same kind of business, after a while you stop bidding for contracts because you think, well, you don't win these because you've got a good product, you win them because you've got the right connections. And then you end up with a situation where those companies, you know, essentially go out of business and then you're left with a situation where you've only got the corrupt companies in the market and and that probably means that they're not really held accountable because it doesn't matter whether they've got quality and whether they're providing the services or not it's just about whether they've got the connections so that's the kind of long-term detrimental impact of that at the same time the kind of machine politics that tony describes is absolutely prevalent in many parts of the world Um, i definitely see it in a lot of my work in sub-Saharan Africa, the political system and elections are very much this kind of clientelist system where someone gets into power and they then need to pay off the people who help to get them there. And they do that partly by allocating government contracts. And, you know, it's definitely not just a developing country problem either. So, you know, we've had big case in Quebec in recent years around construction sector corruption and machine politics there we increasingly see the same kind of thing in parts of europe so i think you know this is clearly a pretty embedded pattern of how political corruption works
1: is corruption embedded in machine politics is it a kind of automatic consequence of machine politics
2: i don't think
0: it is it starts out that way pretty well i mean certainly the origins of city machines in the united states were rapidly developing cities where corporations were prepared to pay Political operator to deliver those contracts. And what the political operators then did was, how did they get their political success? They got it by providing its informal services for immigrant working class voters in their cities that weren't provided by the state in the absence of anything like a welfare state. But then social justice reformers came in the city machines themselves and realized that this was both inefficient and corrupt, and that what they could do better was that if they had an honest government that was providing social welfare services through the government, through some form of welfare state, then that would be a much better system. And so one of the great thrusts of New Deal reform in the 1930s was from those urban machine politicians who were honest and realised that the formal delivery by government of these services for the poor in their cities was preferable to the corruption. And
1: was that one of Roosevelt's key themes, as it were, that he was incorruptible?
0: Yes, he certainly personally was. That's not to say that his family didn't exploit his uh, position for economic gain. That happens in virtually all American political dynasties. But he operated the New Deal with its huge expense of public money, operated on a remarkably graft-free system. That doesn't mean, again, to say that there wasn't electoral influence through government programs, which basically instructed their people to vote the right way. But the interesting thing is that the Republicans, of course, the opposition to the New Deal, believed that simply providing those services and programs was bribing the electorate. And so making allegations that this was corrupt in itself, but it was distorting the market. That was a form of bribery.
1: It is interesting to explore what bribery is because I remember traveling as perhaps you in in parts of the world and being asked for backsheesh to get a a certain stamp from a civil servant or uh, dealing with some situation. Is that acceptable or is that a bit of a cop-out?
0: In terms of paying it or in terms of receiving it.
1: Well, in terms of its relationship to corruption, I'm looking at Liz here because of your work in parts of the world where baksheesh is very much part of the daily life. And would it be considered, in fact, it's not considered as corruption, but should we consider it as corruption?
2: I mean, clearly there are some different cultural practices and perhaps the most obvious is cultures of gift giving around holidays, even giving gifts to business partners those kinds of things are very prevalent in some parts of Asia. And you know what you're talking about, this kind of these small payments, you know, informal payments. They're often called in the literature facilitation payments. So they are a payment to get something which you're entitled to anyway, but it sort of speeds up the process. They're a tricky issue, so they're often you know in the main anti-bribery law in the US, they're in fact exempt. So they're not regarded as a a bribe in that law.
1: Liz, you mentioned the term facilitation and another word popped into my mind, which is commission. I mean, are they so very different?
2: They might be similar. It depends really on the structure of partly of when you're paying and whether you have to pay. So if this is a kind of a gratitude payment, it comes after the service, then you might say, well, it didn't interfere with whether I get the service or not. It didn't cause anyone to violate their duties or do something they shouldn't. But I guess the difficulty there is that you don't really know if you're then building up a practice, which in fact would make them do their duties differently in the future. So what you can end up with, I think, where you've got really an endemic practice of these informal payments is that people start to withhold the service unless they get the payment. Or people start to perhaps not request the service because they think they need to have the payment in order to be able to request it. So, if you think about these informal payments, maybe in the healthcare sector, you could see that that could end up becoming quite a big distortion. Poor people might not go and seek healthcare because they're worried that they'll have to pay. Richer people might get better access and faster access because they're able to pay and able to pay larger amounts. So, again, I do think it distorts the system in a way. So there is also just a broader question about whether there are different cultural practices around corruption and bribery. And so people will often say, oh, that's just the way it is in that country. And I just want to ask us to be a bit careful with that, because I think even within a country where corruption is the norm, there are often people who would really much prefer that it was not the norm, and yet they're fairly powerless to change things. So I've been doing some research lately with some entrepreneurs in Nigeria and Ghana and I've had some great conversations with people who have set up new businesses there. They've got a fantastic little product that they are wanting to, to sell. And they encountered these kinds of problems where they're asked to pay facilitation payments. Maybe even you know, someone in the tax office won't let them register the company and pay taxes until they've paid a bribe, which is crazy. Yeah, They're trying to pay money to the state. And these people feel really, really frustrated about this. And they're saying, look, we've got something that's a great product. We want to compete fairly. And actually what's happening is maybe someone with a lousy product is winning the contract instead because they pay the bribes or they've got better connections.
1: This is Naked Reflections with me, Ed Kessler. And my guests this week are Tony Badger and Liz David Barrett. We're talking about corruption. Even scientists, whom we like to think of as pure as the driven snow, can misbehave. Here's Ferrick found talking to Chris Smith of the e-Life series The Cost of Corruption and Ebola. With discussions of research misconduct, there's often an interest in how much public money has been wasted in research that turned out to be fraudulent. There's a case going on in the States right now involving a researcher who worked on an HIV vaccine project and the laboratory involved had received almost $20 million US in grant funds. So I think the public is rightly concerned about whether uh, their investment in science is being misspent and to what extent that's taking place. If you were to ask scientists to be candid and face no consequence but say to them, have you ever falsified data, what proportion of scientists say then that they have? So that exactly has been done. And Taken collectively, they suggest that on the order of one to three percent of scientists admit to having committed serious fabrication or falsification of data at least one time in their careers. Eric found talking to that beacon of scientific integrity, Dr. Chris Smith. Now, I don't want to try and nuance dishonesty, but is it understandable that a scientist whose research funding is about to run out may be tempted to massage some data? The same, of course, applies to politicians who are anxious to get things done. According to Robert Cairo's biography, Lyndon Johnson bought votes and sold favours, and we've heard about Huey Long. But let's bring it to the UK. There's a very famous case about T. Dan Smith in Newcastle. And this is a place that you spent many years in, and I think, uh, Tony, you engaged in the Labour city politics at the time. Tell us about T. Dan Smith and what he tried to do and why he became known as Mr Newcastle?
0: Well T. Dan Smith was an old uh, member of the Revolutionary Communist Party and his roots in labour politics were very much during World War Two, and then in labour organising in the shipyards. But then when he got into local politics after the war he was part of a group of young labour activists who very much wanted to develop the city and to regenerate the city and their particular concern was the appalling housing conditions in Newcastle. And his group really took control of the city council in 1958 and they were great modernizers and T. Dan Smith had the ambition to make Newcastle the Brasilia of the north. He looked at America, he looked at North Carolina and saw the Research Triangle Park which is a a research enterprise involving three major universities in the Research Triangle and linking that to industrial business development and that's one of the things he tried to establish in the northeast using uh, Newcastle University, the then Poly and Durham University. So he had all these ideas. And as far as Newcastle was concerned, he basically delivered them. If you lived in Newcastle in the late 1960s and 1970s, and the Newcastle of today, the modern vibrant city, is very much a product of T. Dan Smith's vision.
1: So it wasn't possible to regenerate the city without, well, corruption.
0: Well, it was probably possible because actually one of the things that Dan Smith was very careful to do was to avoid corruption in Newcastle itself. He used to talk about when he was involved with the architect and developer, John Paulson, which is what eventually brought him down when Paulson's business collapsed. What they were doing was encouraging other councils to give contracts to Paulson, basically, for their housing programmes. When Dan Smith used to talk about his controlled councils. His controlled council was south of the time. They weren't in Newcastle itself. Dan Smith was very much involved in easing the way by bribing local politicians that he had the contacts with to push forward Polson's contracts. In 1970, when he was investigated for bribing a, a Wandsworth councillor, Dan Smith was acquitted But the councillor was convicted of receiving the bribe from Dan Smith. Brian Walden wrote a famous piece, I think, in the New Statesman, lamenting the fact that if only T. Dan Smith was in America, he would have been mayor of one of the big American cities. This was before Dan Smith's eventual conviction. But that was the calculation that was made, that actually, for all the corruption, that nevertheless, there was an economic regeneration gained from it.
1: What about corruption for the 21st century? Because that's very much a sort of, post-Second World War example. Liz, you've written, I think, something, the book's called Corruption in the 21st Century. Is that right? So what does corruption mean right now in the 21st century?
2: Actually, just a special blog symposium that we did, of public administration review called Rethinking Corruption in the 21st Century. What I'm arguing in that is that we tended to look at corruption very much in this kind of, how can we control public officials better? seeing it as a technical problem. And if we just put in place the right incentives, then we'll be able to fix this problem. And really what I'm saying in, in that piece is that we need to recognise that corruption is political. It's not just a technical problem that is going to be fixed with technical solutions. So we really need to address this fact that it's very often embedded in politics. And you know, think about in that context, how can we improve systems and not just have some little quick fixes? And so that means often thinking about trying to change social norms or looking at places where we've got good norms, the norms that are functioning well and leading to good governance and thinking about how we can transfer them into another context. So rather than creating, I think, necessarily lots more enforcement, which can actually have negative consequences because you end up with public officials feeling like, well, I'm not trusted to do my job. And if I'm not trusted to do my job, then anything I can get away with is fair game. What we really want is that people who are really proud to do their job in public service and they want to be appreciated for having done it with integrity. So thinking more about this kind of positive feedback, I think, is really important. And then just a couple of other things we could do. Think a bit more about the role of the private sector. So. You know That aspect, in fact, that Tony just mentioned, that they, there's someone who's receiving a bribe, but there's also someone who's paying. So can we get companies to do more also to act with integrity and to avoid paying bribes in a business situation? I think there's quite a lot of material and potential there. And I've done some work with businesses around how they're proactively going out and saying that we're not going to engage in corruption and we're willing to stand up and say that. And then finally, I would say get local communities involved. Partly, this is about making local communities think about what is good for them and getting them to watch what's happening in government and start asking questions and holding governments to account where they're not abiding by the rules in the way that they should be. Could I
0: add to what Liz said about technical solutions, that it's not just about technical solutions. One of the issues in the United States with reform movements was that so-called good government reformers frequently blamed the victims. They blamed the poor electorate for the corruption and were often quite anti-democratic in their reforms. When they got into power, their main concern was eliminating government waste. But that also went with basically retrenchment, austerity, controlling government spending. It often completely forgot the sort of social welfare benefits that corruption had bought And as a result, often those good government reformers then get kicked out of office because they don't deliver what uh, the electorate wants. So there has to be a balance between establishing a culture of good governance and actually delivering services for uh, constituents.
1: But of course, I suspect if you'd asked a Newcastle person living in a slum in the 1960s, 70s about the opportunity of actually living in a better environment, they would say, do it, T. Dan Smith, whatever it takes.
0: Yes, a lot of the criticism of urban renewal in Newcastle came from middle-class reformers living in the suburbs, rather than from the members of the old communities that actually welcomed moving for all the problems that came with many of the new housing developments. Nevertheless, when you looked at what they had been living in, their personal reaction was often just great relief to have got out of those circumstances.
1: Without being depressive or putting a downer on things, isn't corruption part of the human condition? Isn't this part of the problem? It's not simply structural. It's not simply technical. Actually, within us, there is an element that is easily corruptible and almost happy to corrupt and be corrupted. Isn't that just who we are?
2: Yeah. And I think that's what's so interesting about it, actually. I would even put it in a more positive way. We like to help other people, and corruption is often about helping other people and if someone asks me to do a favor you know i find i really want to help in any way i can but i think in a, a modern society there need to be boundaries about you know what is yours to help with and what is the state's to help with or your company's to help with so it's not okay if in trying to help and do a favor to someone i'm using public resources to do that with or if I'm you know, just working in a company, I'm using the company's resources to do it with. So I think that's where we can start to draw boundaries. But exactly that is why it's so interesting to me in a way, is that I do think that it's a human propensity to want to do favours and help and fix problems.
0: And there's a very narrow line between lobbying, which is above war, and lobbying, which is effectively corrupt. In the early New Deal, young lawyers came to Washington who'd been working in Wall Street in the national emergency, and they used to pride themselves on the sacrifice they were making in terms of giving out on salaries, and they used to be very meticulous about whether they should return gifts that they got from the citrus growers of Florida in return for the agricultural legislation and doing all of that sort of thing. And then one of their more cynical Brethren pointed out, well, it was all very well. They were going to make all this sacrifice in terms of salary at the time that they were in government service. But as soon as they got out of government service, what were they going to be doing? They were going to be working as lobbyists to guide corporations around the very legislation which they themselves had drafted. So it's a slippery slope.
1: I guess that's why it's called the greasy pole, only. Totally. I'd like to move into the area of religion, because, of course, corruption, if it's part of the human condition, is also part of the religious propensity to do things better. There are plenty of examples in the missionary activities of 18th and 19th century growth of Christianity in the Global South, which I think today we would call corrupt. So can I ask this one of you, Liz, with your experience in more religious parts of the world than the UK presently is, is corruption part of not just the culture, but the religious landscape?
2: Yeah, I mean, religion is another case where we entrust power and that power can also be abused, I think, and it can be abused for private gain. And I think, you know, in religion, often we also have quite hierarchical systems. And that tends to be also the kind of conditions where people will be unwilling to challenge some behaviour, even if they they think it's wrong or corrupt. In fact, I've got a PhD student who's been looking at neo-Pentecostalism in Nigeria and Ghana and you've got some preachers there who are very much saying to people, God wants you to be rich and he doesn't care how you get the money, but he wants you to be rich. And then you get these systems where people are actually, you know, communities saving up to buy a sports car for their preacher. Things that look really bizarre, actually, um, and I think, which look like a, an abuse of power. So definitely religion, I think, is is not in any sense, is immune from corruption. And there may be certain structural features which actually make it quite likely.
1: Well, when you have something like the prosperity gospel, which I think is part of uh, the Pentecostal tradition and the embedded nature of uh, politics and religion, it does leave that sort of thing open. And in the States, of course, Tony, you see this incredible, profound relationship between religious practice and belief and politics.
0: It's historic in the sense that the power of the state to impose moral conformity has always been one of those issues involving political mobilization on things like prohibition and and issues like that. But in in more recent times, I think the willingness of evangelical pastors in particular, and of course, there have been a lot of scandals amongst the TV evangelists, sexual and financial scandals amongst TV evangelists, but on a more serious structural level. The willingness of evangelical Christians to tolerate political corruption and wrong behavior, because the goal they're going to get in terms of legislation they see as being greater. The most obvious recent case was the access to Hollywood tape during the 2016 election and the revelations about Trump's sexual behavior and and views. And it was the next day that the evangelicals gathered in their churches in the South and said, you know, he's a sinner. Um, God forgives sinners. It's more important that we get the Supreme Court judges. That was really a deal as far as evangelical leaders in the South were concerned, to support Trump in return for getting conservative judges who were going to rule on things like abortion, prayer and school and the rest. it. So it's a very tight and not terribly attractive equation. Corrupt or just unethical? I think that may be above my pay grade (laughs) to answer, I think, both.
1: Well, there we have it. I'd like to thank my guests, Tony Badger and Liz David Barrett. I can confirm that no brown envelope stuff with money changed hands during the making of this podcast. We'd love to hear from you at Naked Reflections. You can contact us at the Wolf Institute by email or on Facebook. Let us know what you think of the show. We've covered a wide range of subjects, which you can find by delving into our back catalogue. And it's worth checking out our new podcast, The A to Z of the Holy Land, From Arab to Zion. All you need to know about the Holy Land in bite-sized chunks. You can also find the Naked Reflections podcast at nakedscientist.com slash reflections, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'll be back next week with some more guests.